Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 11, our study this morning. Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. Let's bow together in prayer and we'll study the Word of God together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for its challenge in our lives. We thank You for the way that You use Your Word to instruct us and to correct us, to rebuke us, and to train us to serve You and to live righteous lives. We pray that Your Word will do all of those things in each of our lives this morning, that we might hear your voice and follow you. We thank you always, Lord, for providing such a magnificent salvation fully and freely by simply trusting your Son, putting our faith in him, not ourselves, not in religion or religious ritual, but in Jesus alone. And Lord, it's an amazing thing as we've sung just a little bit ago this morning, that our lives are new, we're different. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come, Paul tells us. You're the one who changes men and women as they come by faith to you. Thank you that we can be a part of your family. Thank you that we can have eternal life not just longevity of life, but abundant life here and now. And that we can pass from death to life. That is, that death need not be a terror to those who know Christ as Savior. Father, help us to have an appreciation for the, your magnificent Son, as Mark does in these chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Help us to have an appreciation for who He is, what He does. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. Richard Sume was the first chaplain at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I had the privilege to be in the seminary at the time that he was chaplain, and he had a, an amazing ability to communicate the Word of God. And he wrote a book uh, entitled Shoes for the Road, which was really a compilation of some of his uh, devotionals that he used. So I had the, uh, the great privilege of hearing him teach these verbally as well as to have the book and be able to read the book. It's called Shoes for the Road, uh, it may be available, it's been many, many years since it was published, but it's a, it's a good little read, and I know that you will uh, get a lot out of it if you decide to try to, to find it. It's called Shoes for the Road. The first chapter of the book asks this, Are you a gimper? G-I-M-P-E-R. Now, as we go through our sermon this morning, I'll explain that term as Dr. Sume explains the term, uh, but he asks, are you a gimper? Now, a gimper, just to kind of give you a clue here, is one who aspires to be different. One who aspires to be different. One who means business. 
And I thought of this particular chapter of Dr. Sume's book because I think of John as one who aspired to be different. He certainly dressed and lived differently, didn't he, John the Baptist? But I think of him as one who aspires to be different. I think of John the Baptist as one who means business. And it's amazing to me that what one, how God can use one person who aspires, one person who aspires to be different, how God can use one person who means business for him. And there may be only one in each generation that he raises up. So when I thought about John the Baptist and was studying about John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1, I thought of Dr. Sume's book. Dr. Sume himself was surely a gimper, one who aspired to be different, one who meant business, one who was all in. Uh, the one thing I remember about him, and just permit me a little reverie here to think about him, uh, he was on dialysis. And he lived for many years on dialysis, much longer than the normal course of life for someone on dialysis. And he used to tell us that he knew what it meant when Paul said that he lived with death. That he lived with death because he could sense death uh, each day in his life and it caused him to as with Paul it caused him to rely upon God even more many are the days that we would come to chapel and they would ask us to pray for Dr. Dr. Sume because his veins had collapsed and they couldn't they weren't able to connect to do the dialysis and he lived a fruitful life he lived a long life and he was a gimper. He was one who aspired to be different. He was one who meant business. And where I'm going with this this morning is I want to challenge each of us to be a gimper, one who does, aspires to be different, one who means business. I'm going to read a little bit of Dr. Sume's chapter he says this, long before I had the term with which to express it, I had heard the truth about Gimpers. The initial impression came through a remark by my esteemed friend Howard W. Furren, who on one occasion said, there is very little difference between men, but that little difference makes a very big difference. Immediately I found my heart and mind challenged in a new direction. As I examined my own life and observed those about me, I had to acknowledge that most of us are satisfied with mediocrity. Few there are among us who aspire to be different. While I was thus musing, there came across my desk William Law's classic book, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, there I discovered an illustration which spoke to the issue before me. It concerned a fictitious character named Penitens. Now, I'll tell you more about Penitens, but you'll have to wait a few minutes. We'll have to plow through some other parts of Mark chapter 1. So, again, I thought of 
John the Baptist and I thought of this book and I thought that if anybody is a gimper, if anybody aspires to be different, if anybody means business, if anybody aspires to excel, it is John the Baptist. Now, in the beginning, Mark writes of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, preparing the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. That one that it speaks of is John the Baptist. And one writer said about Mark, with breathless pace, Mark takes us through the events of Jesus' preparation for ministry. He is anxious that we should waste no time in discovering who Jesus is and why he is of such great importance. Remember, Mark wrote his gospel for Romans, and because they were busy people and believed in power and action, Mark's gospel is a gospel of action, a gospel of the actions of Jesus Christ. So Mark doesn't start with a genealogy as other Gospels do. He doesn't start with a genealogy as, for instance, with Matthew. You see, if you are presenting a king, you need a what? A genealogy. Why do you need a genealogy? Because you need to know that that king is in the right lineage. You need to know that that king is in the right lineage. You need to know that that king has the right pedigree has the right relatives, so to speak. So if you're presenting a king, you need a genealogy. But notice Mark dives right into the action. He dives right into the action. He doesn't put a genealogy. And why is that? It's because if you're presenting a servant, the servant, capital S servant, as Mark is, you need references, you need credentials. And that's what Exactly, Mark begins with the credentials of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate. And so he gives us his credentials. He begins with the prophecies fulfilled in verses 2 and 3. Prophecies at least partially fulfilled in John the Baptist in verses 2 and 3. And then he moves on to talk about the announcement of John the Baptist in verses 4 to 8, and then the commendation of the Father and the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ in verses 9 to 11. And finally, though we won't get to it today, he talks about the defeat of Satan in verses 12 and 13. So, Mark presents this preparatory information necessary for you and me so that we can understand Jesus' life and we can understand his mission. These events authenticate who he is and what he came to do, the unique God-man. As one writer said, to understand Jesus, we begin with his deity. To understand Jesus, we begin with his deity. And that's where Mark begins. This is the one who would do something about sin. Warren Wiersbe asked the question, well, what can the servant do? Jesus Christ is the servant, capital S. What can he do? 
And he answers it this way. What is his work? What can he do? He can guide your life and make it a success. He can overcome Satan and sickness and use you to bring the message of salvation to a lost and needy world. You can be a servant of the servant and share in his wonderful work. That's part of what Mark is trying to do here is to challenge us to share in the work of the servant. To share in the work of the servant. Dr. John Walverd, in his prophecy knowledge, uh, New, Test uh, New and Old Testament prophecy knowledge commentary of the scriptures, says this. For 400 years there had been no prophet in Israel when John the Baptist began his prophetic ministry preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Many in Judea and Jerusalem went out to hear him. John himself made a spectacular appearance, living in rough clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt about his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. His message was abrupt and unyielding. He urged them to confess their sins. He denounced their religious leaders, especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees, calling them a brood of vipers. His message was one of repentance and baptism with water as a sign of their spiritual change. John predicted that after him would come the prophesied one, one of whom he declared, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. So Mark is presenting these credentials of the Son of God, these credentials of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, these credentials of God's servant, and Mark presents them to us. Now, verses 2 and 3 is, is a quotation from uh, two or three different pla uh, places in the Scripture. Verse 2, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, is a quotation from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. And then... Verse 3, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. John's mission was known from his conception. John's mission was announced to his father, Zechariah, if you would turn to the next book, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, and turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 11, we see where John's mission is clearly laid out by the angel when he appears to John's father, Zechariah. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 11, we read this, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, that's Zechariah, John's father, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord." He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. 
Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people for the Lord. That was John's ministry laid out for him before he was even conceived. The angel gave that to, to Zechariah, John's father. His ministry would be as the forerunner to go before and announce the coming of the Messiah, to go before and announce the coming of Messiah. And in that, he at least partially fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies of the coming of the forerunner. John came as God's messenger with God's message to God's people. Something startling was about to happen. Something startling was about to happen. The Messiah was about to come on the scene. The Messiah was about to appear. And John goes ahead of him and announces him. And he announces as God's messenger, he announces God's message to his people. Now John did not come appearing in the king's court or in the city of Jerusalem or in the temple, but he came in the desert. He was in the priestly line, but he would establish a new order not built on the old order. He would be the forerunner of the Messiah. Now, as I said a moment ago, verse 3 of chapter 1 of Mark is a quotation of Isaiah 40. Well, it's interesting to understand the context of Isaiah chapter 40. The northern kingdom has already gone into exile. The northern kingdom of Israel has already gone into exile. The southern exile was impending. The exile of Jerusalem, the exile uh, of Judea was impending. And so... Uh, in that context, the northern kingdom is in exile. The southern kingdom's exile is coming. Isaiah announces that Messiah would bring redemption from sin and deliverance from Gentile aggressors. And so when Mark quotes Isaiah 40, immediately the people would begin to think in those terms, to think in the terms of the Messiah coming, to think in terms of the Messiah redeeming from sin and delivering from Gentile domination. That was part of John's ministry to announce the coming of the Messiah, to announce the coming of one whose sandals he was not worthy to remove. The context then of Malachi chapter 3, which is verse 2 of Mark chapter 1. The context of Malachi 3, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The context is the blemished sacrifices which Israel had been offering. So much so that in Malachi chapter 1, God said, I wish you would put out the fire on the altar I don't want any of your offerings. I wish that you would close the door to the temple. The people had gotten so far away from him. There, was ble there were blemished sacrifices. There was a blemished priesthood. There were unfaithful people. As Mark wrote, 
and Mark applied these passages to John the Baptist, and Mark applied these passages to the current situation that Israel was facing, it was evident to the people of Israel that there was a problem. They needed to change. They needed to turn back to God. They needed to turn away from useless religion and turn to God. And John was used, John the Baptist was used to make that announcement to prepare people for the coming of Messiah. To prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. Well, John's ministry, we've, we've already looked at, at uh, John as the, the last of the Old Testament prophets in verses 2 and 3. And now in verses 4 and 5, we see John's ministry was, as one writer said, to rouse the nation from its lethargy and its slumber. The nation of Israel, a nation that God set apart for himself, a nation that God showed his love for them by choosing them as his unique possession, a nation in relationship with God had forgotten their God and needed to be called back and needed to be prepared for the possible kingdom. Jesus made a legitimate offer of the kingdom when he came. The people of Israel rejected his offer. And instead, he went to Calvary's cross and ultimately he would pay the price of our sin on the cross of Calvary. John's ministry as we see in verses 4 and 5. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John's ministry was, as I said, to rouse the nation from its lethargy, from its slumber, he did that by baptizing and by preaching. Now, baptizing was practiced uh, in many ways in Israel, but it always had the same meaning. Now, there we, under, we today practice believer's baptism. We practice believer's baptism today, but there were many other baptisms in Israel, many other baptisms in the Scripture. To understand the meaning behind all of the baptisms, you have to understand what baptism was. An undressed cloth was prepared for use by first dipping it in bleach. And then you would dip that bleached cloth in dye. The emphasis was on the result of the procedure. Metaphorically, as one writer said, it came to mean uh, to change identity, to change appearance, to change relationships. To the Jews, baptism had the idea of cleansing and of consecration to a new identity or a new relationship. What is astounding here is that the Jewish nation was called to be baptized, was called to immersion. 
It showed that they needed a change. It showed that they needed a different direction in their lives. It showed that they needed to be identified with the Messiah, identified with the message of the Messiah, which was being preached by John the Baptist. John came baptizing and he came preaching. Why did he do that? He was preparing them for the kingdom and for the king. He was preparing the people of Israel for the kingdom and for the king. His preaching is seen in the scripture. We have examples of John's preaching. You were in Luke 1 just a moment ago. If you would turn to Luke chapter 3 this time, Luke chapter 3 starting at verse 7, we have an example of John the Baptist preaching in Luke chapter 3. And verses 7 to 20. In Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 7, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones... God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. You see, they mistook the messenger for the Messiah. They mistook the messenger for... For the Messiah. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. That's an example of the preaching of John the Baptist, proclaiming the coming of the Messiah, proclaiming the coming of the Christ. Well, back in Mark chapter 1, And verses 4 and 5. John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism would show their new identification that they were identifying with John's message. Even as in Christian baptism, in believer's baptism, when you and I are baptized following salvation, not for salvation, 
but following salvation, we are identifying with the church. We are identifying with Jesus Christ. We are identifying with the one who died, was buried, and rose again from the, from the grave, uh, from the dead. We are identifying with him. Well, the, the baptism of John was meant to identify Israel with his message that the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. And the nation was lethargic. The nation was not being careful about its relationship with God. And they needed to change that. And John preached. John proclaimed that Messiah was coming. He preached the baptism of repentance. The word repentance, as several writers said, one writer uh, defined repentance this way, a turnabout of mind which leads to action. A turnabout of mind which leads to action. Re to repent is to change your mind. To change your mind. And in changing your mind to go in a different direction. When we talk about repentance in terms of salvation, we're talking about changing our minds about God. Uh, many of you who uh, came to Christ as adults, uh, and perhaps some of you who came to Christ as children, remember how your thinking changed, how your thinking about God changed, how your thinking about Jesus Christ changed how you realize that he wasn't just another person, not, wasn't just another man, that he was God in the flesh. And our thinking about him changed. That's called repentance, to change the mind. To change the mind. And in changing the mind, you also change the actions that follow. And so John came, not with a, a, a Christian message at this point, but with repentance, a turnabout, as one writer said, a deliberate change of mind resulting in a change of, in thought and behavior. Israel was going in the wrong direction. Israel was going in the wrong direction. The leaders of Israel, the teachers of Israel, were going in the wrong direction. And John is calling them to turn around. John is calling them to repentance. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 has a good uh, description, I believe, of repentance when it says this, For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Repentance is a turnabout, a deliberate change of mind resulting in a change of direction in thought and behavior. Many were coming to John in the wilderness, in the desert, so that they might acknowledge by baptism that they were changing directions. They were preparing themselves for the Messiah. They were preparing themselves for the one that John the Baptist said would bring them forgiveness of sins. Would bring them forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness means the removal or cancellation of an obligation. The removal or cancellation of an obligation. That's what forgiveness means. The cancellation 
of the debt of sin based on Christ's sacrificial death. So John came baptizing, verse 4 tells us, in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. Uh, and that word confession just simply means agreeing with God's verdict. Agreeing with God's verdict. When you and I confess our sins, as John says we should in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, when we confess, it means simply to agree with God's verdict. To agree with God's verdict. To say the same thing. You see, their baptism was an admission of disobedience, an expression of their turning to God. So John goes forward as the one who announced the coming of Messiah. Verse 6, we learn something of John's person. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. Something of his person. Verses 7 and 8, again we see something of his message. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's message pointed to Jesus. John did not upstage Jesus, but rather his message was one of diminishing himself so that Christ might be magnified. Diminishing himself so that Christ might be magnified. John administered the outward sign of a change of life where Jesus, we're told in verses 7 and 8, would bestow the life-giving Spirit. John said, I baptize you with water, but He will baptize you with the whole Holy Spirit. John's baptism was limited. John's baptism was pre preparatory a pledge to welcome the coming one who would baptize them with the Holy Spirit. The bestowal of the Holy Spirit was expected, was an expected feature of the Messiah's coming. An expected feature of the Messiah's coming. Now, I mentioned that when you think about John the Baptist, you Think about somebody who was all in for God. Somebody who meant business for God. Somebody who aspired to be different. Somebody who aspired to excel. In the chapter that I started out with this morning, Are You a Gimper? Dr. Sume continues in this way. He said this, While I was thus musing, there came across my desk William Law's classic, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. 
There I discovered an illustration which spoke to the issue before me. It concerned a fictitious character named Penitence. As law relates the story, it seems that Penitence was a busy, prosperous businessman who was faced with the hard fact that life was drawing to a close in his 35th year. Shortly before his death, when the doctors had given him over, some of his neighbors came to visit him and expressed their sorrow that one so young was being cut off in the prime of life. Penitents acknowledged their concern over his condition, but spoke of his approaching demise with candor. He observed that the new experience before him made everything else in life completely trivial. It was just here that he made a startling, startling confession. Said he, what a strange thing it is that a little health or the poor business of the shop should keep us so unaware of the great things that are coming upon us so fast. If I now had a thousand worlds, I would give them all for one year of such devotion and good works as I never so much intended. He said, then penitence said, the thing that surprises me most is this, that I never intended to live up to the gospel. I never intended to live up to the gospel. How can I call a general disregard and a thorough neglect of all religious improvement of frailty or imperfection when it was in my power to have been as exact and careful and diligent in a course of devotion as in the business of my trade. I could have called in as many helps, have practiced as many rules. At this point, poor penitence was interrupted by a convulsion which never permitted him to speak another word. During the interruption, the convicting work was done in my own heart, for I was confronted with the simple but solemn truth that my friend of the page was all too typical of most of us, myself included. We never really intend to improve. It was in this sequence of events that the Spirit of God supplied the word for which I was searching. It came through reading a daily devotional in Our Daily Bread by M.R. DeHaan. He it was who was used for the first time to my knowledge. He it was who used for the first time to my knowledge the word gimper and defined it as one who aspires to excel. Evidently, he based his definition on the fact that the dictionaries, dictionary defines gimp as ambition or spirit or vigor. Taken together, they add up to my original impression that a gimper is one who aspires to be different, one who means business. John the Baptist was one who aspired to be different. John the Baptist was one who meant to be different. How often it is that God will use one man or one woman to affect an entire nation. John the Baptist aspired to excel. John the Baptist aspired to fulfill God's will for him. Aspired to be different. 
He meant business. And I think that as we look at his life, we should ask, do we mean business? Do we aspire to be different? There may only be one John the Baptist or one Nehemiah or one Daniel in a generation willing to put everything on the line. Willing to put everything on the line. We have some great examples before us. Martin Luther, who in the early 1500s was distressed over the selling of indulgences by the Catholic Church. And so, in order to start a conversation about it, in order to start a study of Scripture about it, he nailed on the Wittenberg door on October 31st, 1517, he nailed his 95 theses, theses, never meaning to split the church, but meaning to start a conversation about the gospel, a conversation about the grace of God, a conversation about the, the importance that the scripture, the place the scriptures would take, and yet he ignited, he ignited a revolution. Where are the Martin Luthers? Where are the John the Baptists? Where are the Nehemiahs? Where are the Daniels? There's another who stands out as a gimper, and that is William Carey. William Carey is called the father of modern missions. The father of modern missions. He lived in the late 1700s, early 1800s. He was apprenticed at age 16 to a shoemaker. And while he worked at his cobbler's bench, he put a map of the world in front of him. He drew a large map of the world and hung it behind his bench and followed the events of the day and marked the events of the day on his calendar. He had a penchant for languages and studied Dutch and Spanish and French and Portuguese. Once converted, he began to study Greek and Latin and Hebrew so he could study the scripture more deeply in his life. He supplemented his income by opening a night school for village children to teach geography and made a crude, crude leather globe that he used to teach. He became a minister of the gospel. He preached his great sermon Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. He eventually went to India. It was the desire of his heart to serve in India. And he established the modern missions that we have today. Uh, there's so much that could be said about him. Uh, I will just go to this. The man who attempted great things for God supervised the setting up of 126 Christian mission schools and an Indian missionary college. Even more important, he inspired English and American Christians to push out for Christ on a global scale. Thus, Carey is appropriately called the father and forerunner of the modern missionary movement. 
the former shoemaker who reportedly made the Bible available and readable to 300 million people in their own languages, whispered on his deathbed in his beloved India, what hath God wrought? To one of his last visitors he said feebly but earnestly, when I am gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak about Dr. Carey's Savior. After his death, Calcutta newspapers joined Christian leaders around the world in lauding his greatness. On his gravestone was chiseled his life motto, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. We have such great examples before us, examples such as John the Baptist, examples such as Martin Luther, William Carey, Examples such as Richard Sume, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Billy Graham, all such great examples of what a difference one person can make, what a difference who means business for Jesus Christ can make. So the question that Dr. Sume is asking me and asking you is this. Are we gimpers? Are we gimpers? Are, do, we, do we aspire to be different? Do we mean business? Larry Richards said this, you and I can continue John's ministry. We can speak of the one more powerful who is about to appear again. We can urge people to change their minds and hearts about God and receive forgiveness. We can compromise that those who look to God's Son, or we can promise, excuse me, that those who look to God's Son will be forgiven and given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for John's commitment. We thank you for his ministry. We thank you for his message. We thank you that he called people back to you. Father, we live in a time and in a land and in a culture that has abandoned you almost totally. That has decided that living your way and living out your truths is not going to be part of our nation. Father, may there be those of us even in this room right now who would be gimpers, who would aspire to something more, who would mean business for you. Others have gone before us and changed not just a nation, but changed a world. There's no reason, Lord, that we can't do the same. We thank you in Jesus' name.